morning, I'm going to, um, for the Sunday school hour um, at Trinity Reformed Baptist, I am teaching through a little booklet by Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach was a particular Baptist pastor. Uh, he, was, uh, he lived from 1640 to 1704. Uh, he was a Reformed Baptist theologian. And he was also a signatory for the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And he has a little booklet called The Glory of a True Church. And so um, week by week during our midweek meeting, we are working through that little booklet. And so I wanted something that I was studying in that booklet and then uh, has, have done further study. It just became like a diving board for me and for the, for the church is, um, in this particular area of church members' duty duties unto their pastors. And so today that's what we're going to be talking about. And really we're not going to be talking about duties plural. We're going to be talking about really um, their primary duty in regards to their pastors. And that is the duty of praying for their pastors. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let us let's pray and let us ask the Lord to bless this time. Oh, gracious and merciful Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for allowing us to gather with your people and to gather in your house, your abode, where you dwell by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the Lord's day, this market day of the soul. We pray now that you would bless the teaching of your word. Um, bless our souls, Lord. Stir us up to be more faithful and to be more committed uh, Christians followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would please help me to lead these precious souls in your truth. And we pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Lord, all of this will be in vain if you will not come to us and visit us by your Spirit through your word. So we pray that you would please bless us in that way. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So again of the duty of church members to the pastor. And Keech's first point in that section is that church members are responsible to pray for their pastors. It is a solemn obligation that we have as members of a church to pray for our pastors, to pray for those that God has set over us to lead us, to guide us, to preach the word of God to us. He says it this way, it is the duty of every member to pray for their pastor and teachers. The first text, and what we're going to do is, I don't have one text for the Sunday School Hour. We have various texts that we're going to be talking about this morning in, in concerning prayer. There's really going to be two, two sections to this lesson. The first one is of the duty of prayer. It's that it is a solemn obligation. And the second section is going to be, the, the things that should motivate us to pray for our pastors, right? So section one, the duty of prayer, and section two, those things that should motivate us to pray for our pastors. So if you will turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll read uh, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Thessalonica, says this, as he closes up his letter, as he wraps this epistle up, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us. 
Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have this confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Just think of the Apostle Paul, right? Um, first, think of his confidence. Think of his confidence concerning the church in Thessalonica. If you remember in, in 1 Thessalonians, he says to them, We are confident concerning you, because our gospel came to you, not in word only, but in power, and in full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you became followers of us. And, and later on in verse 10, he says, and you turned from your worthless idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Apostle Paul had such confidence that these Christians were indeed Christians. And what in this text gave him that confidence? That they were doing what he had commanded them to do. They were doing that. That was their practice and their pattern. And not only that they had been doing it, but he was assured, his heart was confident that they were going to continue to walk in the ways of God in which he led them. And what did he just tell them to do? What did he just tell them to do? Pray. He told them to pray, but specifically pray for us, he says. And then there's two things that he, and you'll see a refrain in these texts that we're going to look at. He pray, he asks them to pray. He commands them you know, it's interesting with the Apostle Paul. He comes like with empty hands as a beggar pleading for prayer. But he also comes as an apostle with authority commanding them to pray. And he, said, he, wants, them, he wants them to pray about two things which concern them and their gospel ministry. First, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Now, he saw what God does with his word in the hearts of people. He saw that in the Thessalonians, right? They became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They became followers of the Apostle Paul in joy, in confidence, and in sufferings. And he saw how the, the word of God worked repentance in their hearts and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw what the word of God does when the Holy Spirit takes it and drives it home when the word of God runs swiftly. In other words, Paul knew that he could do nothing. He could do nothing without God blessing his ministry. And so he pleads, pray that the, that the word may run swiftly and be glorified. And then second, he asks that he, he commands them, he pleads with them to pray that they would be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men. Keach goes on to say, Again, Paul says, pray also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. And prayer was made for the Apostle Peter without ceasing by the church. So um, Keach takes these two examples, one from Colossians chapter 4. We'll talk about that passage later. But then he also brings up Acts chapter 12. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 to 7, Acts chapter 12. Now, I want you to think about this passage of Scripture um, 
and its import or correlation to our regularly called meetings where we pray corporately as a church. Think about this text of scripture in correlation or the import that it should bring into our minds when we gather with the people of God to pray corporately. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Remember, what are we talking about now? The duty of prayer. Like the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 commands them, pray. The Thessalonians and us through, by the Holy Spirit through Paul to the Thessalonians commands us to pray for our pastors. Acts, to, Acts 12, 1 to 7. Now, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded, proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him into prison. And then he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And you notice, it does not say, the people of God came to Herod with pleas for mercy. No, that's not what the church did. They did not come and offer petitions to that wicked king. No, they went to the king of the universe who is over all kings. And prayer was offered to God for Peter by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. This is an amazing miracle. And what was the means that God used to call down that miracle and blessing upon the church, no doubt, and especially upon Peter, who was about to lose his head for the gospel. You can put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that one of your pastors, or you have three pastors, imagine that two of your pastors are taken captive because of their faithful preaching of the gospel by the government. And one of them is killed. One of their lives are taken. You can imagine what, how that would shake you. How that would test your faith. And imagine there's still one who is alive there in prison. What would you do? What would you do? Would you go to the government? Or would you go to your knees? Here, the people of God, and, and we, we're told later on in the book of Acts that when Peter gets out, get, is, is, um, escapes, really, from prison and from death by the mercy of God, through the prayers of the saints, that he comes, and while the saints are still praying, he knocks on the door. And um, one of the young servant girls comes to the door, and she thought she saw a ghost. She thought she saw a ghost, but it was Peter there. What were they doing? The people of God were gathering together to pray corporately for this, for this need and for God's grace upon Peter. When you come to meet 
regularly for prayer meeting, have that in your mind. That is such a powerful thing. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their battle gear, their armament, the way that they march is on their knees. On their knees in prayer. <clears throat> Corporate prayer meetings are so important and they are so powerful. God uses them as means to do mighty things for the kingdom in this earth. And he commands us to gather in that way. And, and uh, throughout the book of Acts, you see this term repeated over and over again that they were praying with one voice. How does that happen? Praying with one voice. You have a group of people and they're all praying, but they're praying with one voice. That would be a, a man would be leading and everybody else. They're not just sitting there distracted, disconnected, not paying attention or going their own down their own paths and roads. No, they're all coming together and that man is leading them to the throne of grace and praying and they are giving their amens and they are adding to his petitions, their own petitions. And there's this unity um, there before the throne of God. So think about that when you gather. Let that encourage you when you gather this week for prayer meeting and every week for prayer meeting that you would gather with one voice, that you would devote yourselves to prayer and that you would pray in faith seeing what God had done through the prayers of the church in the life of the, of the church in Acts. Keach goes on to say, They that neglect this duty, they seem not to care either for their minister or for their own souls. Or whether, or whether or not sinners be converted and the church edified. They pray for their daily bread. And will they not pray to have the bread of life plentifully broken to them? You know, it is really, um, you know, we, we do things that are really insane. We do things that harm ourselves. Um, and we fail to do things that bring us the best good. And that is what Keech is really pointing on. Is that we will, we will feel our hunger and it will drive us to the refrigerator or it'll drive us out to get something to eat for dinner. Um, why would we not devote ourselves to prayer? If we really cared for our body, if we really cared for our souls, if we really cared for the souls of others, if we really cared for the loss, it should give us a hunger for prayer. So 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he says again, brethren, pray for us. It's a solid, solemn obligation. Also in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, I'm going to summarize. I was going to read the whole text, but just for time's sake. Verse 18, the author to the Hebrews says, pray for us. Again, it's, a, it's in an imperative. It's a command. It's a solemn obligation. It is a duty. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this. Well, why? Why, why the force that I may be restored to you the sooner? Um, it is quite possible, even probable, that the author of the Hebrews was in jail at the time that he wrote the letter of Hebrews. And that's why he says... Pray, pray earnestly. I urge you to pray. Pray for us, especially for this reason, that I may be restored to you. In, in, in other words, when 
men. Like we, we live in a time of peace, in a sense. You know, we are not dragged out of our homes for doing family worship on a regular basis in this country. We, we don't have, a, really the threat has probably not even crossed our mind that someone, that someone would come into this place and try to do us harm because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is a very strange thing throughout church history. For all of church history, the common lot of God's people would be that they were as sheep led to the slaughter. I, I pray that um, God does not have to bring such times into our life to show us our vulnerability, show us our weakness, show us our need for Him and His protection. So, but you see, all through these texts, pray that we would be delivered from wicked men, unreasonable men. Pray that the gospel would run swiftly. The church praying that Peter would be delivered from martyrdom. And there, that the author of Hebrews would be restored, even released from his chains. So, to close this section, just think about how often the apostle commanded and at the same time pled with his brethren to go to God in prayer. And not only to go to God in prayer, but to offer up petitions for himself and for those who accompanied him in church planting and mission work. And then in other parts of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that the grace and deliverance that he received from God was owing to the faithful supplication of God's people on his behalf. Now, if this man, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, mighty in many ways and exceedingly useful for the spreading of the gospel and the building up of the church, if this man needed the consistent, earnest, and effectual prayer of the saints, then how much more your ordinary servant of Jehovah, your, your pastor, Right? Your pastor. How much more? Your pastor. So then what should mo motivate members to pray for their pastors? What should motivate members to pray for their pastors? The motives are these. The minister's work is great. The opposition against them is not small. It is God's loud call of command. Their weaknesses and temptations are many. The increase and edification of the church depends on the success of their ministry. And if they fall or fail, Christ's name will be greatly blasphemed. So let's think about each one of those together. First, the minister's work is great. That should motivate us. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel... And a door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And then he goes on to say, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. In other words, it takes supernatural, divine enablement to preach the word of the gospel undiluted in the face of hostile opposition and hatred. To those, just think about what Paul says here, to those who are perishing, it is like the stench of a rotten corpse. You can imagine the smell of death, the aroma of death for a man to, in his evangelism, to preach the gospel to one who is perishing, or even in the church to one who is perishing, who has no heart for Christ or no heart for the truth. Who is sufficient for that? If you're not going to peddle the word and speak so as to itch the ears of men, if you were called to do such things, you would say with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient? His work is so great. Therefore, pray. Pray for him. Pray for him. Pray for them. Second, the opposition made against them is not small. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. I'll start in verse 8. Paul says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 9, for a great and effective door has been opened to me. You see that refrain, right? That the word of God may run swiftly. A door was opened to me for the gospel that I may speak as I ought to speak the mystery of Christ. He says here, for a great and effective door has opened to me. Oh, that's great, Paul. That's wonderful. Everything is good. Smooth sailing seas. But then he says, but then he says, And there are many adversaries. A great and effective door. Whenever there is a great and effective door opened for the gospel, you know what you're going to have? You're going to to have those who have been appointed to everlasting life who will receive the word. And you have others who will say, what is this babbler saying? This man is insane. He is crazy. A great and effective door has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Whenever you do the work of the Lord, you're going to have both of those. And their opposition, I'm sure you have all seen over over the years of your Christian walk. Um, You've even seen things that have reminded you of that woman who was sitting in the synagogue for all of those years when Jesus came. They all found out that there was a devil in her. And she stood up and she said, we know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Have you come here to to punish us before our time. And it'll, it, it'll happen in churches as well. So three, the motive three, God's loud call, as well as the call of ministers themselves, is for the saints' continual prayers and supplication for them. In, in other words, God commands us to. That should motivate us. The law of God, we have been redeemed. We're, we're not those who walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do in us? but enable us to keep the righteous requirement of the law. And the law is not an evil thing. It is not a bad thing. The law of God is good. It is holy. It is just. And the law of God should motivate us because he commands us to pray and to pray for our pastors. Listen to Colossians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Masters, 
Give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. There is great temptation for a Christian and for a pastor or a preacher to speak in a way that they ought not speak, to hold back, to, to give into cowardice or the fear of man, and not to speak with confidence. Even their own doubts, their own doubts of, of, of things can strip them of the confidence and boldness that they need to speak the word of God with. And what is Paul pleading with to keep him from that temptation? Pray. Pray. Pray for us. I, I want to say something. This is just an aside. I didn't think about it. But listen to how often the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer that a door would be opened for the word. And, and he's not primarily talking about when he's sitting behind whatever they would have sat behind in that time. You know, he's talking about in their evangelism. He's talking about in their preaching of the gospel to lost people as they went into that pagan darkness and, and sought to bring the light of the gospel to those who are sitting in midnight. Can you pray that way? Um, it, it takes both. Charles Spurgeon said to, to, to do something without praying first is presumption. But to pray for something and not do it, to not put shoe leather to your prayers is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. So I want to encourage you and exhort you to not only pray that God would open a door for the word, but that you would look for opportunities to share the word of God with lost people, people that you know, people at the store, people that you don't know, just perfect strangers. Don't wait for an opportunity. Make an opportunity to share the gospel. We live in a very wicked and perverse generation, and it is growing from worse to worse, and people are perishing. People are perishing, and we have the truth. We have the truth of the gospel. What kind, what kind of person takes the light and puts it under a coffee table or under the bed? No, a city is to be set on a hill where the light will shine all over the land. That's what we are. We are a city set on the hill. Now, I want to focus. I don't, I don't encourage focusing on the weaknesses of your pastors, but this next motivation is a very, very powerful motiva motivation. And what I have seen when talking to people is that they think that pastors, they don't struggle like regular people struggle. They don't think that they endure the same kind of temptations and, and sufferings and weaknesses. But I would actually plead that they are probably made to feel their weakness in a very acute way that your ordinary servant of the Lord Jesus Christ does not feel it. So, so think about their weaknesses and temptations. They are many, and that should motivate us to pray for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, But we have this treasure, and he's talking about the gospel again. We have this gospel message, this treasure, this mystery of Christ, this light, 
we have this treasure in earthen vessels, just a little clay pot, like a dollar store, little thin clay pot. You can you sit it down on the counter, a marble counter, just a little too hard, and it just cracks and falls apart. Fragile. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Listen to Gardener Spring. He has this little booklet called An Earnest Plea for Pastors. And in it he says this. And who and what are ministers themselves? Frail men, fallible, sinning men, exposed to every snare, to temptation in every form. And from the very post of observation they occupy, they are an easier target for the fiery darts of the foe. They are not trite victims. Another way of saying, they are not victims of little importance. They are not trite victims the great adversary is seeking when he would wound and cripple Christ's ministers. One such victim is worth more to the kingdom of darkness than a number of common men. For this very reason, their temptations are probably more subtle and severe than those encountered by ordinary Christians. If this... So his... The devil's... Looking like a military man in battle would be accustomed to looking for. He would be looking for the red stripe around the arm or he would be looking for the medals or he would be looking for a particular type of man who is a leading man. And that's the one that he would want to take first. And that's exactly how the devil is. That is exactly how the devil is. He is going to look for the leading man and he's going to put peculiar pressure upon him. And then he goes on to say, if this subtle deceiver fails to destroy them, that's his first goal, is to absolutely destroy them. But if he fails to destroy them, he cunningly aims at neutralizing their influence by quenching the fervor of their piety, by lulling them into negligence, and doing all in his power to render their work burdensome. Do you think about that? Do you think about that? When you think about the preaching of the word of God every, every week, when you think about, do you think about them throughout the week and the things that they must have to face concerning temptations and, and Satan's special attention upon them? Would, if you did think about that, would that not motivate you to go to your knees and to pray for them earnestly and fervently? Not only for their well-being, but for your own well-being, for your soul's sake. How, he says, he says, how perilous is the condition of that minister then, whose heart is not encouraged, whose hands are not strengthened, and who is not upheld by the prayers of his people. It is not in his own closet and his own knees alone that he finds security and comfort and ennobling, humbling, and purifying thoughts and joys? No. But it is better when they also seek them in his behalf, and he becomes a better and happier man, and a more useful minister of the everlasting gospel. Let us ask ourselves, brethren, since the devil never sleeps nor slumbers, have we prayed for our pastors so as to build a hedge of protection around them and their families. How many may 
How many things may they have suffered due to our neglect to bring them to God in prayer? They are weak. They are frail. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame, put to shame the things that are mighty. I did a word study on just that word weak. First in the, in the New Testament. Like what, what is entailed in these passages of Scripture when, when Paul says the weak things of the world? It can be used in different ways in different contexts, but just listen to the way that this word and in the original language is used throughout the scriptures. And even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, it can speak of suffering from a debilitating illness or sickness. An, an, Ill, an ill man is a weak man. It can speak of physical weakness. It could speak of relative ineffectiveness, either externally or inwardly. It can speak of a feebleness, of being ineffectual. It can speak of being without influence. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are dishonored. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. We're probably very familiar with this passage. We should be very familiar with this passage. It teaches us that you cannot treat every person in the body of Christ the same way. Because everybody in the body of Christ is not the same. At one, at one moment, someone can be unruly. And it would be very, very harmful to go to an unruly person and comfort them. No, you're supposed to warn the unruly. And then you can have someone who is very faint-hearted. And it would absolutely destroy them to come and warn the faint-hearted one. They need to be upheld and strengthened. So he says this. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and uphold the weak. When I, thought of, when I thought of that, upholding the weak in regards to, to pastors, how that could apply to pastors, I, it reminded me of Exodus chapter 17. When Moses is there on the mountain and he's called to raise his staff above his hands and as Joshua and the Israelites are, Israelites are fighting against the Amalekites, it was that when Moses had his arms raised up above his head that the Amalekites were, were being destroyed by the Israelites. The Israelites were prevailing. But as soon as he would start to drop his arms, then the Amalekites would begin to prevail over the Israelites. And then what happened? And then what happened? Aaron and Hur came and upheld his arms, held his arms up for him. And then Joshua routed the Amalekites. That is what we are to do for our pastors in prayer, to uphold them, to lift them up, that the gospel might prevail in this world. In the Septuagint, so Old Testament passages of Scripture that were translated into the Greek language, the same, the same words were used in Psalm 6-2. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I am weak. I am feeble. Proverbs 24. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Just think of the way that 
Um, think of that in light of pastors, right? There are no super Christians in the church. You, and, and that means pastors too. They are frail. They are weak. They are fallen. Redeemed, but fallen. They are fragile. They are languishing, needy. Another, another word is um, paraluo. It's where we get the word paralyzed from, paraluo. And it means to be, it, it's to, to cause to be feeble, to cause to be disabled, to cause to be weak. You see it as the, the man who was paralyzed from birth, right? When the Lord Jesus Christ said, arise, take up your mat and go. In Hebrews 12, it's the, the, the word that's used to, to speak of um, strengthening the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The feeble knees, the, the paralyzed knees. Think of this passage in the Old T Testament. We're going to close with this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 18, this paraluo word. It says in 1 Chronicles 18.4 that David took from him. So this is... The Israelites led by David conquer a nation. And then David takes from that king 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And then it says this, and David also, here's our word, David also hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. I don't know if you are aware, but to hamstring something is to take, it, it, was, it was the practice of a, of a conqueror that if there was any possibility whatsoever that their foe could use their horses against them in battle, what they would do is they would take the horses and they would sever the hamstring tendon at the back of the horse's knee to paralyze them. It's, that's the same word that is used in Hebrews, the feeble knees, paraluo. Think about this, brothers and sisters. There are many things which seek to disable and hamstring your pastors on a daily basis. To paralyze them, to render them ineffective, to put them on the shelf so that they can do you no good and do this world no good. And your pastors, regardless of who they are, they will be frail men of dust. Therefore, never cease to pray for them, that their faith may not fail. What a terrible load they carry, being insufficient for the master's task. They need the help of God. They need the prayers of the saints. Let us close with that. Gracious and merciful Father, thank you for your, your truth, for your word. Thank you for pastors, for saving men out of this fallen race of Adam. And not only saving men, but then shaping them and fashioning them and giving them godly, exemplary character. And not only that, but giving them gifts and wisdom and a love for you and a love for your people. So as they are ready to be poured, poured out like a drink offering on the faith of your, of your saints. And not only that, Lord, but that you would take them and that you would give them as gifts to particular churches. 
Blessed are those who have pastors, who have pastors who love you and who love your word and who love your people. Oh God, help us to pray for them. Help us to uphold them. Help, and, uh, help us to strengthen them in their weaknesses. Help us to honor them and esteem them and, and to never cease to offer up our petitions and supplications to you on their behalf. And we pray that you would use them. Use them to build your church. Use them to edify your people. Use them and their preaching, the preaching of your gospel by your spirit to convert the lost and, and, and add to your number daily. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.